0: These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post military life. Head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes. Welcome to episode 96 of the Headspace and Timing Podcast. We've got a lot of guests in the show talking about their relationship to veteran mental health, whether it be as a veteran or a provider. Today's show. We're going to talk about the psychological impact of combat from a caregiver's perspective with the CEO of the Independence Fund, Sarah Verardo.
1: My husband lost another buddy from his unit, Derek Hill. And as I sat there, I thought the only time these guys see each other is at funerals. And who's next? And it got to the point where when I would mention someone's name, Mike would say, did he kill himself? Is he okay? Is he Is he in the hospital? I mean, it was... It was very alarming
0: to me. Welcome to the Headspace and Timing Podcast, a show dedicated to breaking down the stereotypes around veteran mental health. My name is Dwayne France, and I'm a retired Army non commissioned officer and a combat veteran of both Iraq and Afghanistan. After retiring from the Army, I took on a new mission as a clinical mental health counselor for my fellow service members. If you served in any branch of the military, then you're familiar with the M2 machine gun, the 50 cal. It's one of the most effective weapons in the military's arsenal. If the weapon's headspace and timing wasn't set correctly, however, it was just a useless chunk of metal. Veterans can be rendered inoperable if their headspace and timing's not set correctly either. That's my goal with this show, to change the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health and reduce the stigma against seeking support. Each week, we'll talk with mental health professionals, veterans, and those who support service members, veterans, and their families. We're going to have real and honest conversations about a topic that most just don't like to talk about, veteran mental health. Let's jump into this week's conversation. Hey, folks, welcome back to the Headspace and Timing podcast. Thanks for taking the time to listen to a conversation about veteran mental health. Uh, On this show and the Headspace and Timing blog, we try to bring you diverse conversations with people that are making an impact on the mental health and wellness of service members, veterans, and their families. Uh, My guest today, Sarah Verardo, is certainly doing that. She's a military spouse, caregiver, author, advocate, mother, and CEO of the Independence Fund, an organization that's committed to empowering our nation's wounded, injured, or ill veterans to overcome their emotional and, and physical wounds that were incurred in light of duty. Sarah, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me and for how much awareness you bring to all of these issues.
0: Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think that uh, there's not enough, as you well know in, in the conversations that you've been having, um, that there's not enough conversations about this. And the more we have it, the the easier it's going to be to sort of change the way that we think and talk about it. And I definitely like to hear about the Independence Fund and all of your work. But before we get into that, I'd like to give you an opportunity to tell the audience a little bit about yourself.
1: Thank you so much. Um, I'm first and foremost a very proud wife of a former enlisted soldier. And my husband was never prouder than wearing this nation's uniform. He served with the 82nd Airborne, and we think they're the best of the best. They deployed to conduct combat operations in 2009. They were hit with high casualty rates very quickly through IEDs, and sadly, they had a high rate of many wounded in action and several killed. Mike was wounded twice in April of 2010, the first time he was riding as a gunner, and they hit a roadside IED. He was ejected out. Um, He lost consciousness for a bit, and he was pretty badly banged up, so he was medically evacuated. He was given the choice you know go back to the United States and heal or go back with his unit and he had just lost one of his good friends and he went back to his unit and on his very first foot patrol back in action just two weeks later he was hit again and this time he was the eighth guy over a wall and he stepped on an IED that had life-changing consequence. it immediately blew off his left leg and much of his left arm and he's burned over about thirty five percent of his body. he had severe facial damage, and he lives with a very severe traumatic brain injury. That journey and what Mike survived, and I always remind him that when his medevac was called in, he was he was not expected to survive, and the first hurdle that he jumped was that he was not dead on arrival. But it was a long road home from war that continues to this day. This past August, Mike had his 119th surgery post-Afghanistan. The road home for war remains long and hard for both of us, and, and I'm really proud of the progress he's made. But every single day is a fight to continue on and a fight to recover. So I understand firsthand that when a service member comes home from war, especially catastrophically wounded, that entire family continues to serve. And when he came home, and, and then when he got out of the army, and we entered VA system, which I have the VA has been definitely a mixed bag for us. The best doctors in the world. Um, The access to care was incredibly bureaucratic and difficult, and we waited initially for very basic critical care. I had to go on YouTube and learn how to pack Mike's wounds myself. I had to duct tape his prosthetic leg together. Um, Our entrance into the VA system was fraught with challenges, and I quickly realized that his war was over and mine was just beginning, and mine was going to be fought on the home front against the very institution that I thought was going to take care of him, and that was the VA. And it was disappointing to me, but it fueled a fight that I realized we were doing a lot of sinking. And I realized that if we were going to swim, it was going to be up to me. I had to relieve him of duty. And I did. And I, and I said, I've got this. Um, you know, I think like many caregivers on the home front, we're the ones rucking that heavy load now. And it was the honor of his lifetime to serve our country. And now it's the honor of my lifetime to take care of him. So Mike and I are the proud parents of three little girls. They are one, two, and four. And they're just the light and love of our lives. And they've restored so much of what the terrorists took.
0: Now, that is, uh, that is definitely an incredible story. Uh, my wife and I just celebrated uh, 20 years in this past anniversary. And uh, she was with me out of uh, four of my five deployments. And, and we've always recognized, and I've said here on the show, is the families experience the deployments just along with us, but in a very different way um and and then as you said the war doesn't stop you know i always say the guns don't go silent when we leave the battlefield therefore neither should veterans or their families um i'm certain i mean and, and yes this is a very touchy situation but i've heard many stories of military spouses or you know or girlfriends or things like that walking into walter reed or or brook army medical center seeing their service member laying there and then turning and walking out of the room saying, this is too much, I can't handle this. I'm I'm certain you've probably heard those stories too, or or maybe even seen that. Um, but I submit to you that that's probably the first hurdle that you overcame was not turning around and walking out.
1: Mike and I were not married at the time when he was injured. I mean, we met in high school, so I really feel like we grew up together, and I always knew that he wanted to serve after he was injured, He was very, very concerned that I knew the extent of what I was signing up for. And I remember the first time I was going to be able to see him, he was emphatic that I knew all of his injuries. And I I believe that he knew before I did, which is so interesting to me now, given the extent of his brain injury. I think he knew before I did what we were in for. And I really believed as, as silly as this may sound now, I believed that he was, you know, he'd have a prosthetic leg and, um, we'd, we'd lead normal life and we, we have it. I mean, we certainly haven't, but I would do it again over and over and over again. But yes, a lot of wives and girlfriends and people, the stress is tremendous. And a lot of Mike's friends even went through that early on, or they've divorced later and, as a caregiver i can't I can't judge that because being Mike's caregiver is certainly the most difficult thing I have ever done and i and I don't ever want to sugarcoat that to someone and pretend that it's all you know flowers, rainbows, and unicorns because it is really hard i I have to think for both of us all of the time, and thinking for another adult is very challenging um even going out on a date with your husband when your husband is catastrophically wounded and and you feel like you don't feel like the wife anymore. You have to maybe shower them, get them dressed, make the reservation, push them in the wheelchair there. And then you're sitting across and you think, am I your wife or am I your nurse? And we've been through that like every couple and making sure that I am finding respite for myself, which for me is found through my job. I mean, I love my job, but it is what gives me a sense of self beyond being his caregiver because I could lose myself in the frustration and the hold. And it's, it's never in caring for him. My hardest battle is being on hold with the VA and the paperwork and it's death by a thousand paper cuts. It certainly is. So I think that the people who leave, we can't judge that. We just have to hope there are better paths ahead for those wounded warriors.
0: No, absolutely. And I, and I certainly appreciate your graciousness. Um, and, and it's not for everybody, just like the military isn't for everybody. Um, and, and I've known, uh, several caregivers. Um, you're, you're currently a fellow with the Elizabeth Dole Foundation. I'm, um, familiar with many caregivers and, and veterans that are, uh, involved in that. And it's, it's not something for the faint of heart. And yet, that's not the only thing you, that you do. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, if there were, um, uh, civilian medals, uh, the caregivers would certainly earn them. <laughs> And if that's the only thing that you did, then, then that would be great. But then that's not the only thing that you do. You've, you've taken it not just to care for Mike. Um, but then you've, you've moved beyond that. You know, you've, um, you've published a children's book to help your, your kids and other children of catastrophically wounded, ill, or injured to be able to understand that you, you're an advocate legislatively. And of course, your, your work with the independence fund, any one of those things can be a full time job. And, uh, and and I just commend you for, for each of them individually and all of them collectively.
1: Thank you. It's a mission that is deeply personal to me, of course. And I think of how people will say that something costs an arm and a leg, the price of something. And my husband's military service literally cost an arm and a leg.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: There's not enough we can do as a nation to take care of those who raise their hands and say, send me. And then they suffer these catastrophic injuries because it's not only on them, it's also on their families. Oftentimes people will ask my husband, are you doing okay? How's the VA treating you? And bless his heart because he'll say, Oh, well, it's fine. It's great. And, and he got to the point finally when he realized is, is it okay? And he doesn't realize the hours through paperwork or I'm trying to write or wrong with the VA or um, I'm stuck in this bureaucratic nightmare And oftentimes that burden really exists solely on the family. And so it was really on my heart to make sure that we were doing wraparound services at the Independence Fund to the entire wounded veteran family, because that stress that that service member has oftentimes is absorbed by the caregiver. They're the ones who are unpacking those bags of war years and then decades later.
0: Well, that's certainly the truth, and the, the support of, and we call it family, but even just a supportive network of um, buddies, brothers, family, you know, cousins, what have you. Um, it, this is borne out in the research. Uh, there was a study in the beginning of last year, I've re- referenced it fairly often uh, here on the show, um, in which the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine actually looked at. I think it was 4,000 veterans that were accessed post 9-11 veterans, both using the VA and not. Um, and one of the single biggest factors for, um, committing to treatment and, and benefiting from treatment was the support of the family and the veterans network. And so I often say that veteran mental health impacts the family and the family impacts veteran mental health, both, both positively and negatively. And that is you, you'd said before we started talking is that's where the independence fund is starting to move into not just the the visible wounds which are catastrophic and and come with their own um, psychological impact but also the invisible wounds because you're not just dealing with Mike who's who's lost an arm and a leg you've also you're like you said the traumatic brain injury the unseen wounds are as significant if not more significant than even the physical wounds
1: well absolutely and for us I, Mike can't go to the grocery store without someone coming up to him and hugging him and thanking him for his service because his injuries are so visible. And, of course, the physical injuries require a tremendous amount of care. But Mike's traumatic brain injury is probably the most difficult part of our days together because I have to think for him. And, and granted, on the TBI scale, he's on the severe end of that. I have to think for, for both of us. What the weather is like and what he has to wear. I have to. I have to help him with every aspect of his day, um, or or another adult does. Mike is completely dependent for his activities of daily living, meaning other than feeding himself, meaning that um, he requires the assistance of another person to complete his most base, basic tasks, from um, washing and bathing, getting clean and ready, um, and everything in between. And certainly people don't see that when they look at him because he'll sit and talk to you and and he loves New England sports and he'll talk, you know, extensively about New England sports or history. And people will think, oh, this is a bright guy. What do you mean he can't take a shower by himself or he doesn't understand how to know what is weather appropriate clothing or he, um, you know, puts keys in the refrigerator and milk in the closet? I mean, and those are things that happen on an hourly basis that I have to redirect and say okay Mike remember so milk is milk is a cold item so that would go in the refrigerator and and those are the type of things that caregivers are constantly i mean our minds are not able to turn off because that's the that's the load we have to ruck now and it's and it's heavy but you can't put it down
0: right and and again I, i'm just as i'm hearing you just that alone um you know, as you said, as a full-time job. Um, and then in 2012, two years after, um, I think, uh, of course, after the deployment, that's when you started getting involved in the Independence Fund. How did that come about?
2: Mike was an
1: early track chair recipient of the Independence Fund. So the Independence Fund was founded by a man named Luker, who had a tremendous and patriotic heart for veterans. And he wanted to award um, track all-terrain wheelchairs to those that had been catastrophically injured. So Mike was one of the early recipients, and I had the privilege of being involved um, very early on in helping award chairs and um, really assisting at that point from donor development to chair applications, and it was truly um, just a great volunteer effort from so many wonderful people. And as that has evolved and as I took over the fund We've been able to found other programs as well that I've been proud to found that have included family programs and caregiver programs and now Operation Resiliency that I'm sure we'll chat about. But we've also branched into adaptive sports and making sure that the life cycle of the wounded veteran that we've seen really early on, a lot of these veterans who came to us at the Independence Fund in our early years. They were, you know, young and newly married or unmarried, and they wanted a track wheelchair. And then they had usually wives or spouses that wanted to go on a caregiver retreat because they started to learn the stress of leaving the military hospital and what comes next. And I will never forget that leaving Bamsey with Mike and bringing him home to Rhode Island, which where we're both from, where we met in high school, and I could not believe that they were letting me take him home. I mean, it was later the way I felt when I took my newborn baby home from the hospital Mm -hmm. for the first time. Like, I Mm -hmm. can't believe I'm in charge of this, you know? And it was totally daunting. And I, I really felt tremendous stress, but pride and excitement, but also just terrified. Like, how am I going to keep him alive? The same way you probably feel about when you bring a baby home for the first time. Like, it's very, very scary. And so i really wanted us to have these caregiver programs that provide wraparound and aftercare. And we've been able to get in the weeds. And I charge my entire team. I tell them, I want us to be like a disaster relief organization. We're not the VA. We don't have to be bureaucratic. We don't have to wait. And we should never keep people waiting. If there is an unmet need for a severely wounded veteran and their family, I want us to be on the ground filling that need right away. I mean, there's, there's absolutely no reason why we can't, we need to be fluid and we need to meet them where they are, whatever, wherever they are. There's not one size fits all. There's, there might be a veteran who is, looks totally functional, but, you know, filling out paperwork for them, maybe that meets that veteran where they are and it gives them that boost to get through the day. And that can be life-changing for someone, just that hand hand, up and sometimes a hand out saying that we are here for you and we're going to be the bridge from where you are right now to where you need to go. And I fully believe that people on the ground with you when you are in crisis makes all of the difference. And I tell my entire team, like, let us let us see that for these people who have given so much.
0: You know, there's a couple of really great points in what you just said. First, it's so poignant to me. Um, I never considered it the way that you just described it um, every parent I know that my wife and I felt this um, when when we leave the hospital we were in Germany when both our kids were born when my daughter was born our, our first newborn we're like you're putting me in charge of this human right this is like a literal <laughs> right. human tiny you know and, and you know and we often right. joke you know you, we have licenses for everything in the world except for being a parent and it's arguably one of the most critical <laughs> jobs. But that's the same thing when when you leave Brook Army Medical Center and you say, I can't believe you put me in charge of this human. And it's not a baby human, right. it's an adult human. And, and right. I think that that's something that, <laughs> again, I hadn't even considered that parallel. But when you said it, it struck me that in the same anxiety as a parent brings home a newborn, arguably somebody that we know is going to be dependent on us, that's a huge shift from somebody who was not dependent on us before, and and, and I'm not calling Mike an infant in any way, and I know that's not what you meant. No,
2: of course, of course.
0: Right, but just that's that's a very striking parallel.
1: It, well, it is, and it's, it's a lot of times people will say to me, are you okay? This is so much, are you okay? And I'll say back, and this is really probably to my, what I would say, civilian friends, you know, because you have your army friends, or your military friends, or your wounded warrior friends, and you have your civilian friends, and and I'll finally say, guys, it doesn't matter if I'm okay or not. I mean, this is this is what I have to do. You have to push forward. And that's why you have to find a way to push forward that makes it okay. And, of course, there are days that I'm not okay. There are days where I feel like, how am I going to continue doing this? Um, there are people who are so dependent on me. And I, in August, when Mike had his 119th surgery post-Afghanistan, I was down, it had been a very difficult few days. And as caregivers, we exist in this space of just, I think we're battle ready all the time. And so we have this heightened sense of stress that never is able to leave our body. And we were, I was down in the cafeteria. Things had been just very bad post-surgery. And all of a sudden I heard a trauma code, you know, being called through the hospital and um, they were urgently calling for a patient's room. And I thought, oh, that's so horrible. For whoever that's for, because, you know, the Wounded Warrior community is a small one. And um, and then I realized they were calling it for Mike's room. And this was just in August and was more than eight years post-injury. And it was like the breath I had been holding all of these years left my body. And I remember telling myself, okay, it's game over. He has fought as long as he could and as hard as he could. And this is it. And and luckily it wasn't it, of course, um, and he's incredibly strong and he has an amazing will to push through and fight. But what's important to note about that is that as a caregiver on the home front, We have to be battle ready, and we are really never in a state where we can say we are okay. Of course, there are times that are calmer than others. And you're fixing an issue with VA or DoD and overpayment or underpayment or a benefit or a medical bill, um, or you're just doing it life solo. And I know it's true for me and many of the caregivers I represent, and, and that we have the privilege of serving at the Independence Fund. That every single life choice I make, I have to ask myself, can I do this alone? Because that's the reality for the thousands of caregivers that are in my situation, and there are thousands of us that are providing this 24-7 injured. And it's a battle that is often fought completely alone, and that's why we think peer support is incredibly important as well.
0: See, and, and that's another aspect of of what you were talking about earlier that um, that I wanted to bring out, um, I've been involved in in several different non profits uh, both uh, as a program director, now an executive director and then as a board member uh, on others or advisory board and and, and one thing that we is, as we often do both in the military is we want to guard against mission creep, right You know I do what I do very well. Um, I was a program director for a homeless program. Um, I, I enjoyed it very much, but the one thing we couldn't do, was get mental health treatment, which is why I transitioned to to clinical work full time. Um, you started out your your core mission, the Independence Fund's core mission, was to just provide all terrain wheelchairs, and you could have very easily guarded against mission creep um, and say, "Well, this is what we do well." Um, but it's not that you've done mission creep; it's it's mission expansion. You you've seen what other gaps are there, and you've you know, water will you know fill the container that that it needs to, um, and, and so the expansion, the evolution, really of the mission of the Independence Fund and, uh, fund over time is uh, is pretty impressive as well.
1: Thank you. Really, for us, it was natural, and it did so much of it has mirrored my own family's experience, and that's why I believe that personal lived experience is vital when you're leading a nonprofit like this. It is often striking to me as I'm in roundtables or Congress or elsewhere that a lot of times the people who are making decisions for families like mine have no firsthand experience of families like mine. And that's why it's deeply personal to me. I mean, deeply personal to me. And it is, and it's not to say that everyone has to be a veteran or caregiver because there are fabulous leaders out there who, of course, um, are neither. But I think it is really important for an organization to have a natural connection to those that they're serving. And I live that experience every day. And so when someone is desperately in need of services from the independence fund, I understand that we need to meet that person where they are. And also what the needs of that family may look like. We had the honor of launching our family program, in 2018, and we've named it Heroes at Home, which is named after my children, children's book, which is Hero at Home. And the program was a tremendous success, and for our inaugural retreat, which has a huge emphasis on art therapy, we took um, seven families of catastrophically wounded post-9-11 veterans, and all of our programs are open to all arrows of wounded heroes, but this particular group, they were all um, post-9-11 combat wounded And they had children that were born post-injury or they had children that were um, under one year old when the service member was wounded. So a group of young children and young families, and we went to Disney together, and and my family was able to be part part of that. And what I found was so impactful is that our oldest daughter said to me, um, all of the daddies are in wheelchairs. And she'd say things like, Ariana's daddy doesn't talk a lot like our daddy, or he he can't find all the words like our daddy can't find the words. And it was really inclusive for our children, too. And that's where we need to look at this next generation who's also carrying this torch at home, caring for our nation's wounded, ill, and injured. So it's been a very natural evolution, and the track chair has provided so much independence back. What I've pledged and promised is that America's caregivers and their families will always be at the forefront of the Independence Fund's desire to provide independence back to our nation's heroes. And that's really what our true mission is, to empower and support our nation's wounded. And a lot of times it does come in the form of these very cool tank-like all-terrain track chairs, but other times it comes through a family retreat or just meeting that veteran where they are.
0: You know that's uh, that's very critical and even timely, I think, for me. Um, you know, as uh, as we tend to get older, and I spent twenty two years in the army, and and things start to 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 maybe shift or move in your mid forties. And and I um I recently you know had my physical, and my wife and I were talking about you know some of my lab results and and things like that, and it was very common. And my son, who's a senior in high school, when I started to deploy. Um, my children were in elementary school, in, in really first grade, and when I stopped deploying, they were approaching high school. Um, so the majority of my my son and, and obviously my daughter's formative years were um, with me as, as deploying. Um, but he got worried just because we were talking about something medical, and, and like he, you know, he's like, what, what, "What's going on?" And you know, just it's high cholesterol. Like it's you know, it's human, but you know, but it was, <laughs> it, but that's the. That's the, the issue of, um, of of how it impacts the families and even how it impacts the families um, this much farther on. Uh, but then it's also, you talk about the longevity, and, and of course we've talked about the longevity, I've talked about it here on this show, that we're entering the first cross-generational war. Um, this past year was the first time that someone not born on 9-11 could enlist in the military and go fight in the same battle my children my son of course who's uh, 17 about to turn 18 um you know we have heard over and over again that generationally that we're passing these conflicts on to the next generation my father was a vietnam vet i've said often again my brother and i both served in iraq um one after the other and then afghanistan simultaneously and so it is an impact in the longevity sense and and that's where the Independence Fund, you're talking about shifting now to these um, focusing on the invisible wounds or the psychological impact of not just on the veteran, but on the family. Um, and doing it with the lens of now we're doing it 10, 12, 14 years after the incidents that occurred.
1: Right. We know that. One, we know what we don't know, and we're very grateful for the advancements of battlefield medicine. Had my husband been injured even five or 10 years earlier, he probably wouldn't have survived his injuries. And there were so many incredible things that kept him alive. I mean, first and foremost, his amazing medic, um, a man named Sean Testa, who I, who I really believe kept him alive, but also the advancements of battlefield medicine. I mean, he had a what's considered a non-FDA-approved blood transfusion, um, and which is basically like a field blood transfusion. And of course, afterwards, you know, you're getting called every six months saying, we've got to check his blood, we've got to check his blood. But at the time, whatever is necessary is being done to keep these service members alive, which is incredible. But we need to make sure what is happening at home moves in tandem with that. So it's great that the service member is being kept alive. Okay, do we have the programs of support then to provide these incredible needs for the decades to come? And we don't know what the longevity of life looks like looks like for these service members we absolutely don't um we do know that they have for our most catastrophically wounded we know that they have polytraumatic conditions they have um routine medical matters can turn seriously very quickly they have unending surgeries i mean my husband has obviously been under anesthesia so many times. And what does that do on a person? And I, I had a leading researcher say to me recently, nationally, say to me, Sarah, there are not groups of people who have been under anesthesia this many times. Even within the military, there are not groups of people. So um, it's it's a group that, how do you study the long-term effects of being under anesthesia hundreds of times? You You really can't. And so we don't know what that looks like yet. What I do know is that whether people want to call it that or not, it's a tremendous stressor and burden on the family. And not that it's a burden, that's, it's carried joyfully and gladly, of course. I mean, the alternative living life without your veteran is unimaginable. And I know I speak for men, fellow caregivers, when I say I would do this and I would I would do every hard bit of it any single day over the alternative, of course. But we still owe it to those who have worn our nation's uniform been severely injured defending it and then those who take care of them to give them every single thing we have as a nation through nonprofits, through government intervention i mean whatever we can do to work together in tandem to make sure the programs that happen at home move successfully with the advancements of battlefield medicine
0: you know that's that is an excellent point you know we've often talked about you know um, these wounds that would have been catastrophic in earlier conflicts um, the um, the mortality rate of current conflicts is lower um, than than obviously Vietnam and, and certainly with the numbers in uh, but just per ratio and, and per um, deployments to um, to World War two and World War one uh, so the survivability is greater but the uh, catastrophic impact of that survivability is also greater, right? You know, this is why we've seen this emergence in, in traumatic brain injury. Um, and, and, and even with the multiple deployments of, um, you know, back to back, you know, I was, I was actually talking to a, another guest recently where, you know, I could be, um, arguably considered a two war veteran, whereas in the past that would have meant World War II in Korea or Korea and Vietnam. Well, now it's just one theater right. to another. And so many of us are doing that. Um, and, and I had one Iraq and two Afghanistans within a four-year span or a three-year span or whatever it was. And, and so just what that long-term impact is going to be, again, not just on the physical aspect, but on the uh, on the psychological aspect. And you'd mentioned earlier Operation Resiliency and the, the new program that the Independence Fund had launched um, that's trying to address that.
1: Exactly. And what I realized is my, my husband served with the best men this country will ever know. And they stood shoulder to shoulder and they deployed to Afghanistan. And sadly, many of them never came home. And then some of them came home only to lose their battle here on the home front. And what that looks like has been different for every veteran, of course, but I think of one of my dearest friends and, They had not been out of the military very long. Her husband was a two-time Purple Heart recipient, Staff Sergeant Alan Thomas. And in 2013, he was not in a good place. He had been severely wounded um, during the same deployment as Mike. And in fact, when Mike was brought in to Walter Reed, still in a coma, Staff Sergeant Thomas basically crawled down the hall um, to get to him, to be there, because Mike was one of his guys. And... When they got out of the military, he really struggled. You know, he had been wounded twice in war and he went to the place that he should have been able to turn to for help. And they had no beds available at the VA in 2013. And he was given a prescription for an antidepressant. And by the time the VA called many months later to schedule his mental health appointment, he was dead and buried. And that moment of telling my husband that a man that he loved that had been a leader for him a friend that he had killed himself i mean i will never forget that as long as i live i remember what he was wearing what music was playing and i remember um the weight of holding my husband's entire body upright because he was just distraught it was the first friend he had lost to suicide and this was someone who had survived the horrors of afghanistan including being severely wounded in afghanistan And then came home and lost his battle here and had been failed by the very place that was supposed to help him. And it's a stain on our nation, and we know that. And yes, many veterans that do end their lives by suicide are not plugged in with VA. And I think that's a tremendous problem because VA has incredible resources, supports of help that um, are available to the service member. But this service member did do everything he was supposed to do to try to go through the proper channels to get help. And he was he was failed by a system that was set up and supposed to help him. And I watched my dear friend and their two little girls, one who was only a few months old and one was, who was 2 um, bury their American hero. And I watched my husband stand on a prosthetic leg, standing and saluting a flag draped coffin. And I didn't realize at the time that I would see that scene several more times. It happened again this past September. And my husband lost another buddy from his unit, Derek Hill, And as I sat there at the funeral in Virginia and my husband was Walter Reed and one of his other buddies went and got him and brought him to the funeral, I thought the only time these guys see each other is at funerals and who's next. And it got to the point where when I would mention someone's name, Mike would say, did he kill himself? Is he okay? Is he, is he in the hospital? I mean, it was, it was very alarming to me. And I went to Dr. Keta Franklin, who is just a powerhouse for suicide prevention and mental health, and she's a true boots-on-the-ground leader. I mean, she really believes in um, meeting the service member where they are, and I think that she's a fabulous, incredible force in the veteran and military community, and of course, she runs suicide prevention for Veterans Affairs. And I went to her in September, and I said to her, teach me about suicide (laughs) because the independent son hasn't been in the space. As if
0: you didn't know already. Right. (laughs) I mean, but yes, I mean the experience, but, but no, that's great.
1: But I did. I said, teach me. I said, tell me, tell me what I need to know. And, and, and she was fabulous because she, she really filled in the blanks for me. Like who commits suicide? Why? What are the psychological autopsies? What do they look like? Um, What does prevention look like? And I said to her, this is my idea i know it's i know it's big i want to reunite entire military units for suicide prevention i want to bring them back together i don't want it to be that the only time they see each other is at funerals i want to charge them that they're each other's keeper on the home front i mean these guys would take a bullet for each other literally on the battlefield and i've watched them as they have funerals for each other they come they, they mobilize. I mean, especially my, my Airborne, my BCO guys, I mean, Bravo Company. And these these men are dear to me. My book, my children's book was dedicated to them. I think they're the best men in this country. And I watch them mobilize when there's a funeral. I mean, it's almost like they're deploying. They come from all corners of the nation and, and they rally together. I want to see them do that before there is another suicide. And so we're working with VA and Dr. Franklin, and the VA is writing the curriculum. They're providing the mental health experts, and we're making this this really interesting mix of mental health, suicide prevention, but also it's going to be fun. It's going to be respite. It's going to be healing. It's going to be a reunion, and at the end of it, if it, if the person is a veteran, because we still have some of our guys are on active duty for this initial retreat. If, a guy, if they are a veteran, we're going to say, please sign up for the VA because these are services that are available to you. Let's utilize them and, and let's make sure we're doing appropriate aftercare. And then the second part of that is you are each other's keeper the same way you were in Afghanistan. And let's, let's replicate that on the home front. So I am just I'm so excited to pilot this group, um, especially with a group of men that are just deeply, deeply personal to me.
0: You know, I think it's, um, and as I mentioned when we when we first uh, started talking before we started recording the show, um, is that uh, I've been trying to um, we've been trying to connect for a while, but then I when I read about the the reunion that you have coming up, and it mirrors a conversation that I recently had with a colleague of mine, literally this past Sunday, uh, with Richard Casper of Creative Vets. And um, and he had mentioned that uh, he had helped a veteran um, write a song about the Battle of Nazaria, and he went to the 15-year reunion of the Marines who had participated in the, the Battle of Nazaria. Uh, and he said it was a great reunion, uh, and it wasn't necessarily focused mental health, um, but he said what surprised him was shortly after the reunion had been concluded, three of the Marines took their own lives. And, and he, and he was asking me as a mental health professional, he says, why is this? Right. You know, and, and these guys have, have made it for these 15 years. Um, and, and then after this reunion, then everything falls apart. Um, and his idea, literally two days, I think before I I read your article was, how can we incorporate mental health treatment into these reunions? And it looks like the independence fund is taking a step forward in doing that.
1: Absolutely. We know that. We could not, and and frankly, should not do this without VA as a partner. Um, We want to do this responsibly. We want to look at this at knowing that VA understands the unique needs of our combat veterans and their experience around mental health. So for us, our relationship with VA is the most integral part of how we are running these reunion retreats and we believe having them at the center of this provides the responsible and really vital part of mental health that's necessary for how we're how we're looking at doing this. We don't want to just bring everyone back together for a few days of fun without having a, a good battle plan, so to speak, about how we're going to really get to the root of what these issues are.
0: No, and and I think that uh, just that awareness, and this goes into. You know, the purpose of the show. We're simply not having these conversations. Um, we're, we're hugging the veterans that come home, um, that have lost a leg or lost an arm. Or, you know, I have a mentor of mine that said, uh, you know, the, the face scar is sexy, but the internal wound isn't, right? You know, we don't have some, um, you know, those veterans that are, are struggling with these. Um, it is, it's taboo and it's not talked about and for the success the independence fund has had in addressing the physical wounds um and it's like getting your foot in the door and say oh by the way along with these physical wounds these other issues are as severe if not more and uh, and i just i want to commend you personally and, and your team for taking that bold step to to essentially take the lead on on talking about the invisible wounds of war
2: Well, we
1: really appreciate it. I mean, it's truly the honor of myself and my team to care for those who have done so much to keep us a nation of freedom. And I can't think of a better way to spend my days. It's really incredible to be surrounded by just amazing veterans and their caregivers who have given so much and so selflessly to our nation.
0: No, this is, um, this is definitely great. I think that we can talk about this stuff all day. Uh, but if somebody's interested in finding more about the Independence Fund in general or, or some of the other things specifically, Operation Resiliency, um, your family programs, um, how can they find you not just on the web but maybe social media and things like that?
1: So, of course, our website is IndependenceFund.org, and our Facebook page is Facebook forward slash the Independence Fund. We're on Twitter at IndieFund, and we're on Instagram, Independence Fund, And you can give us a call also at 888-851-7996. We'd love to connect. We, our team is made up mostly of veterans and caregivers who really understand the unique challenges of this life and want to help.
0: Now, that's great. I am definitely going to make sure that uh, all of those links, as well as the link to your book, Hero at Home, Um, and and probably anything else, the the articles that that I've started to find on Operation Resiliency, I'm going to make sure that all those links are in the show notes so that people can find you and uh, see what you're doing.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much, really, for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: Absolutely. you are listening to Headspace & Timing, where we're trying to change the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health. After Sarah and I finished talking, I told her that this conversation was one of the ones that has most impacted me personally. In the story of Sarah, Mike, and their daughters, you can hear the true impact of combat. You can also hear the hope, the resilience, the frustration, and the joy that can go along with caring for our wounded, ill, or injured veterans. Sarah and the Independence Fund are making a difference in the lives of service members, veterans, and their families. One of the things I appreciate most is the fact that they're not just focused on physical wounds, but also supporting veterans psychologically. They're among a growing group of organizations that are bringing service members, veterans, and their families together, but including mental health professionals in the planning and execution of these events. This is critical to addressing the impact of service. We wouldn't address the physical challenges without input and advice from medical professionals but it's often the case that organizations try to address psychological concerns without input and advice from mental health professionals. Glad to hear that the Independence Fund is partnering with the VA and other organizations to get that support. So I'd like to thank you for taking the time to check us out. If you want to find the show notes for this episode, go to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash HST096. While you're there, share the link in the show with someone that you think may enjoy it. One of the challenges in changing the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health is how do we spread the word. You can subscribe on a bunch of different podcast players like iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and many others. While you're checking it out, consider dropping a rating or review on the show. It helps for the show to rank higher in searches. If you leave a review, I'll mention you on the show, which is always cool, but it'll also help others find us. A couple of new reviews came in this week, one from GG Griffith and another veteran and mental health professional, Eric Strong. Eric and I had a great conversation a little bit ago for an upcoming episode of the Headspace and Timing podcast, and he turned the tables on me by inviting me on his show, Conversations from the Couch. You can find out how to share the same feedback on the podcast player you use by going to veteranmentalhealthcom forward slash platforms. We've got another way for you to give feedback too. You can drop me a line at info at veteranmentalhealth.com. You can do that to recommend guests, make suggestions, or just a quick note of appreciation. And speaking of appreciation, you can now spot me a cup of coffee. As you may or may not know, this is a totally independent project that makes no money and takes a lot of time. It's a passion of mine, of course, but there are costs to web and audio hosting, social media promotion, things like that. If you feel like you can spare a bit for a cup of coffee, then you can head over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash coffee to put some paper in the tip jar. Just a reminder that the guests and information on this show are for educational purposes only and not meant to be considered professional advice. Well, I'm a therapist. I'm not your therapist. If something you've heard makes you think that you could talk to someone, then reach out and do so. I'd like to thank Doc Todd for giving us permission to use his track, Not Alone, from his album, Combat Medicine. Doc's trying to bring the discussion about veteran mental health out of the darkness and into the light, and you can see all of his work at therealdoctod.com. Make sure to join us next week for another great episode, and until then, remember veterans, you're not alone, ever.